Welcome to the Instinctive Influencers Podcast, a show where influence becomes one of your tools for success. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Weber and Ed Haley. Hi, I'm Brian. And I am Ed. And this is the Instinctive Influencers Podcast. Well, Ed, we're back. We're back with a second half of a look at the book, Great Leaders Have No Rules, man. This is uh, this has been, I'm telling you, this book has definitely changed my mentality on a lot of different things. And I can say that some of the stuff we're about to cover, I've actually used within the past week. Actually, the very first chapter I'm going to talk about, I have been doing uh, for myself at work and uh, I've been trying to enforce it across the board uh, within my section. So, um, and, and it was because of this. I was like, huh, it's interesting. So, yeah, this book has had some kind of an impact. And the, the last chapter I'm going to talk about, I'm really excited about. And I think you're going to be very involved in that chapter. Absolutely. Well, I, you know what? I don't think we need to be dibble dabbling around with a little bit of chit chat this time. Let's get straight into this book, man. Go right into chapter six, brother. All right. So, chapter six. Chapter six is crowd your calendar. And the big idea behind this, uh, the key idea is time is your most valuable asset. So why be so careless with even a single minute? Great leaders work from a schedule, not a to-do list. That really caught me was that not a to-do list. We're going to talk a little bit about that to-do list. So basically, you're a first sergeant currently, Brian, and I mean, you got all this experience. How many things do you think you got on your to-do list right now? Uh, Right now or just daily? Just right now, what do you have on your to-do list? Um, I would definitely say there's probably about 10 to 12 things that I know for sure that are like a to-do type item this coming up week. And I have a hard time sometimes because I'll, be, I'll, I'll literally try to be doing two or three at a time. Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of in the same boat. Like with, If I went straight to-do list, I mean... It's always something on there, right? Oh, absolutely. And I actually, to be honest with you, Brian, sometimes I have I have stuff on there that's there for days, maybe even a week or two. You know, something as simple as um, you know, show prep for an episode later down the line, right? We'll say, okay, we need to do that this week, mm-hmm. and then this week comes and goes, and you're like, oh, I gotta do it next week. And then it's the week before we record, and you're like, now nah, I got no choice, I gotta do it. So I know, at least for me. On my side, that's kind of, you know, so I do have things that sit on my to-do list sometimes. What about you, Brian? Oh, yeah, by far. Like, I mean, there's a there's a point where I actually, I kind of get discouraged sometimes when I don't get things checked off completely. And as I, as I go looking back at it, I tend to find myself, like, wondering why I even put certain things on the list. But I don't know. It's just, it's like every single day seems to get bigger and not smaller, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah, and that so that's part of the problem with the to-do list, though, because it becomes an overwhelming thing. Like, So I'm a, I like to draw my little square and put a, something on a to-do list, usually on a three-by-five card because I'm an old uh, – I'm an old and non-commissioned officer. And, you know, you want to check it off because when you check it off, you know, it feels good. You get a little dopamine injection when you check it off. But what really happens is – I'll be cleaning out my desk drawer and be like, oh, ooh, I never checked that one off. Like, that's what really happens. And then Outlook has a, you know, Outlook has that ability to create a to-do list. And I was like, okay. Yeah, that didn't help either, man. I just got red stuff in my to-do list on Outlook. So um, <laughs> what Kevin talks about is, first of all, 
he says that there's some, there was some research done, right? And in it, he this is research he conducted for one of his other books. And it was about time management. And he talked to seven billionaires, 13 Olympic athletes, 29 straight A students, 239 entrepreneurs. And one of the things that he found that shocked him, almost none of them had a to-do list. So I'm like, wow, that's so crazy. And then uh, backup research to that, right? 41% of what we put on our to-do list is never done at all. Would you, would you think, you know, would you, would you say that about your to-do list? Cause I definitely could say that about mine. Hey brother, I would sign concur on that council <laughs> statement and say, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. This I have, you know, and it's funny that you, I want to go back to the, you brought up about the note cards real quick. I am literally sitting here right now. I have three different piles of note cards in front of me of just <laughs> to do or I want to talk about this or whatever. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, he just mentioned me. But, but yeah, I, I have to say that there was one time, there was one time and I at the academy, um, if you remember how my desk was, I had the computer and stuff behind me and had a desk in front of me. Well, nobody ever seen it, but there was one time I made a to-do list for one day. And I completed everything on that to-do list. I took that little check and I did the little check marks and everything, just like you talked about, because that's the same thing I do. I took that to-do list and I taped it up on the bottom side of the cupboard there. Uh, basically, if I'm sitting at the computer and only I'm sitting at the computer, I can look up and I can see it, uh. but no one else could. And I that was like a constant reminder to me that, hey, listen, no matter what, you know, there's always going to be a to-do list, but at least you completed one. <laughs> yeah. I, and so my problem with to-do list is, I, so I start writing one like for today, like I'll get to work. And this used to be a thing for me. I get to work at nine. I'll write a to-do list. What I need to get done today. But my mind morphs that into stuff that's like, well, that's like a two or three day task. And so I really don't stick to what I want to do these next 24 hours. And I think that's where my failures and to-do list usage comes in, honestly. It's definitely something where you're, you don't realize that you think it's helpful because you, you're writing it down all that, but you don't really realize that it's not so helpful because then what happens with that to-do list? I mean, you could, you get lost, you get all kinds of things. So, I mean, it's just, to me, I'm starting to see the light after finding this information from Kevin and you know what, how he details it. Yeah. And that's what I got. Like, this is a big one for me and I'm going to go back and we're going to talk a little bit about um, focusing on, on time. But for, for him, what he'd suggest is putting everything on your calendar. Now, I think it's a little early for me to, he, he suggests uh, he talks about actually breaking things into 15 minute increments but what I have done is I have taken my calendar into 30 minutes. I can't, I can't quite get the 15 yet because that's very, you know what I mean? That's very uh, pinpoint, but I've been pretty good. So I'll say, Hey, I get to work at nine. Right. First 30 minutes is clear my email. Right. Got to clear the email. Got to read email. Now for you, it may be different because you're a first runner. So you may get significantly more email than me. Uh, that you have to clear. So maybe 30 minutes ain't enough for Brian, maybe 45, whatever. Uh, and then I'll say like the next 30 minutes, right? And this goes back to closing your open door too, because these are things you really got to do if your door closed, because that 30 minutes of checking email if my door opens is going to be definitely an hour. So I'll do 30 minutes of email. Then I do 30 minutes. I'm the uh, manager for the defense travel. So when people do trips, I go in there and I clear the queue for defense travel for the morning, right? Which I do three times a day. So I got that 30 minutes blocked out. 
Now at 10, I literally have on my calendar, open your door. Oh, wow. At 10 o'clock to 10.01. I, I did break that down in a small increment, but I open my door. And now that says, okay, now I'm open for other issues. If one of the captains that I work with has a problem, a lot of times they'll come in and be like, hey, can you go to this meeting for me? Something like that. The hey use is what messes me up still. But I have found some efficiency in it. I, and, and the last thing on my calendar every day is at 1700. Grab your common access card and go home. <laughs> now, does it always work out? That one I usually do not make. But <laughs> it, the intent is there because then it reminds you, you know, when that reminder pops up, because I set them as reminders, it, it reminds you that, hey, I need to start thinking about winding down and going home. Um, and in and, and the example that Kevin gives, like he talks about, I mean, really managing uh, everything about your, your, you know, your calendar. He talks about like all the way to your social bonding time with your family, managing what time that's going to take place. I think that's a little much for me, for my personality type, but I, I kind of like to manage your calendar. And I, you know, so how do you use your calendar in your outlook? Because we're always, our emails open all day at work, right? Right. Uh, do you effectively or at all use your calendar at work, Ryan? I don't think I, at this point right now, Ed, I don't think I effectively use it. I, I can safely say that I do use it and I have recurring events and all these recurring events, you know, they, they're always on there and stuff. And also I have a, uh, I have a government phone too. So I can actually, I can be at my room. I can be, I can be anywhere px whatever and i can check my calendar need be you know and then i can pull up other people's calendars to you know like the commanders or whatever to sync calendars but that's the thing like i'm literally sitting here right now ed uh as you were speaking about certain things it brought a it, it, like literally epiphany to me i was like when you said open door and closed door i thought ooh, that's a good way to uh, summarize how to crowd my personal calendar is i have my closed door items and then i have my open door items and I want to fill time slots with closed door items and then other time slots with open door items. But I mean, even you, you mentioned something about like family time and you know, then I thought to myself, Ooh, I could actually put it in a calendar that I'm going to, you know, cause I call, I talk to my wife and children. I try to talk to them once a day that I'm talking to them for, you know, however much time. But then earlier, if you remember correct, we, we, we had a conversation before we came on air about meditation. And we were just kind of discussing, you know, different tie, you know, what's going on and how we do it. And you kind of led to a really funny story, but I'll, I will leave that for another time. But with that, I thought, I wonder if I should add my meditation in there too, you know, and it literally, and then follow that to a T, you know what I'm saying? That would help. And so what, what I've learned through reading this is, uh, when you crowd your calendar, right, um, you'll start finding some free time in, in there and you'll be like, Oh wow, this is this, and, you know, you got a little more structure to you. Um, and I think that would also help because then you can plan out that meditation. Like for me, meditation is I get up in the morning, you know, clean up, brush teeth, all that good stuff, get ready for the gym. And then, uh, I try to meditate first thing in the morning before the gym if not, then when I know when I go at lunchtime to the gym, the first thing I do when I go at lunchtime to the gym before I ride my bike, because I usually ride my bike at lunch, is I will meditate in the sauna for 15 minutes and then go ride my bike. Got to get that sweat started. Um, but you do, you the crowd in your calendar thing, it sounds crazy, 
that I say crowd your calendar and then in the next terms in the next uh sentence say it'll free more time. Uh but it, it so far it's worked pretty well for me. Um cuz so to-do list also causes a lot of stress. Oh yeah. Let me ask you this real quick. Um you so you said since you started doing this crowd your calendar are you noticing that you're staying on task more with to-do items that are not on a to-do list or you're just you're tackling whatever you're saying is on that calendar and you're getting things done faster so i now there's things obviously that just pop up out of nowhere right that's that's just murphy is going to show up for us yes. uh, i have meetings that just pop up which we also could talk about meetings i could talk about meetings forever because i hate meetings me too um but using the calendar the stuff that i know the to do stuff gets done because the calendar is going to remind me, um, you know, I said, like I said, I set reminders and stuff and it's more of a visual. I just keep, you know, usually if I keep my calendar up on one screen while I work on another and that helps with the tracking. Okay. I have to stay on task because I need, I only have 30 minutes to do my emails. So I got to stay on task, check that block, move to the next thing, DTS, whatever. And then like I said, I have that, 30 minute block for DTS three times a day. So it's just more structured that 15 minute, man, that's gotta be a reach. But the, the, the guy that talks about, it, I can't recall his name says that if you can manage your calendar down to 15 minute increments, you will be in the 90 percentile of the most organized people in an organization just by doing that. Wow. Um, again, I just see a lot of challenges with it <laughs> for me. The other thing in this chapter that I wanted to really highlight is, so the, the, what's the big deal about, you know, the to-do list and the crowd in your calendar? Well, we already said how precious time is, right? Right. And um, we said time is, is our most valuable asset. And as N- NCOs, as leaders, we know that because first thing we do when a soldier does something wrong is we say, well, take away their time because that's their, that's what they prize, right? So a couple of little, little blurbs that he t- has in the book. The first one comes from the team building in in time and moments. And it is by coach K from the Duke blue devils. (laughs) When you are given a responsibility of building a team, you must make time for certain things, time to uh, form relationships, time to establish standards, time to get motivated. Leaders are responsible for assuring that you spend both the necessary quantity and quality of time to get the job done and for making certain that no time is wasted. So Coach K is one of those guys that he his practice is like, and he has a time to like 15-minute increments. We will be doing this, and then we will do this. Mm-hmm. And that's how he manages his calendar for his practices, you know, for time management. And it's funny because two of the two of the blurbs that in, in this chapter both deal with time. And they're both uh, deal with time, and both of them are legendary college basketball coach. The other one is from Coach Wooden's Wooden on Leadership. A leader must be skillful, a master in using time productively and teaching others to do the same. Your skill in doing this directly impacts on the ability of your organization to compete, even survive. I had a fetish about using time efficiently, not wasting it. Carefully plan every minute. And I mean, just that is that alone. I could have just read that and been like, all right, I'm done talking about this chapter because it's the gist of the chapter. It's talking about effectively use every minute of every day, Brian. Great leaders understand the true value of time. You can never get a minute back once it's wasted. 
Whether you're a sports coach getting ready for the season or an entrepreneur trying to ship your new product or a manager who has to meet a deadline, using time more effectively is how you beat the competition. While traditional time management systems teach us that our calendar is for meetings and phone calls, those who achieve extreme productivity put everything on their calendar and live by that calendar, Brian. Uh, so what do you think? I'll tell you, um, I will definitely say that this whole concept of the crowded calendar, it, it's kind of got me, it's got me like re, my gears really spinning. And so recently I did an NCOPD with uh, all my non-commissioned officers in the company. And what I, one of the things I wanted to do is I really wanted their voice to be within the training. Like, what do we want to talk about? And so what I did is had somebody go up to a whiteboard. Huh, wonder where I got that from. But I had somebody go up to a whiteboard <laughs> and start writing down the list. And we just started one through whatever. Two of the items that I want to mesh together were time management and talent management. Now, you've heard us talk about talent management on this show many times before. And then all of a sudden, Kevin Cruz brings this time management piece to light. And to me, there's so much to it that I think... If I use this enough and I can, and I, you know, basically I'm going to do a, a personal experiment on self and if it works out, then I'm going to transfer this over to them during an, a non-commissioned officer professional development time. But I want to intertwine that with a talent management uh, type concept, but it's just, I don't know, man, this chapter, I, there's a, there's a section of it right here that I you know, it's just one of the, it's a line that I like to use a lot, but, or it has information from a line I like to use a lot, but right here, it talks about military professionals use the term force multiplier to refer to the ver variables in battle that increase effectiveness of a given number of troops. And when I think that, cause I, I like to use the word force multiplier a lot because personally a force multiplier basically increases our capabilities. Now, whether that's a force multiplier in the military or a force multiplier, say, in the uh, the civilian industry, it, it doesn't matter where it's at. It's just still a force multiplier. We we can we can diversify uh, the you know the uh, what we're able our capabilities are and then continue on. And I'm thinking to myself, well, this time management thing crowd my calendar. This is going to make me a force multiplier because not only one am I going to be designating where time goes. But at the same time, I can see where I'm losing time. You know, I mean, there's there are things like you said. There are areas where we may not um, we may not schedule things, but they happen. Well, who's to say I can't go back and put that back in that calendar so I can go back and look at it and kind of analyze? All right, my time, blah blah blah. This I got this. I got to do all this. Oh, I added this in, so I may want to set this one over here to this different time. So we can tweak and prod and and just kind of figure it all out. But yeah, I'm, I'm definitely, uh, I'm, I'm sold on it. And now it's just comes out to the whole experimentation piece. Yeah. And that's why I was telling you earlier, I'm actually developing a calendar that we can share across my, uh, my part of my organization where, so we know what meetings are going on. And it, so the meeting thing also plays into something else. I got some advice this week that I never thought of. And, uh, a guy was leaving a section and he said, Every meeting that you can go to, go to, because it just gives you more knowledge. Now, some meetings, I've been to some meetings like, you know, uh, you go to a meeting and 
the right audience isn't there. I've been to a meeting to talk to a unit about their their mission and they they don't even show up on the video teleconference. So the organization of meetings can be a waste of time depending. Um, and and I'm, I'm a big stickler for let's have an agenda, let's follow the agenda, and then let's have a discussion at the end. But anyway, as far as the calendar goes, though, if I create a calendar which shows all the meetings across the organization, then I, as Ed, can say, okay, I have a block of an hour right here. Let me look at the shared calendar. You know what? I should go to that meeting and let's see what I can learn, especially for me who's still trying to figure things out uh, about operating in Europe. So that was a piece of advice I got this week that I thought was interesting. And uh, the other thing that I got for meetings before we move on is I like the idea of stand up meetings because people are going to talk a lot less <laughs> if we're standing there and you're yep. talking, I say, Hey, what, what did you do the last 24 hours? What are you doing the next 24 hours and what's holding you back? And let's do it as a stand up. You know how short meetings would be then? Oh yeah. Yep. Uh, so I'm, yeah, I, I'd prefer a stand-up meeting. <laughs> I'm actually, uh, I think I'm thinking about doing uh, for my orderly room, training room people, because I have a, I have a, a substantial amount of people within my company, and then a, a larger size orderly training room. And I can definitely say that I'm thinking about utilizing the stand-up meeting uh, type thing. And also, I mean, I've, there's there's a couple other different things that I've I've uh, noticed that I, I would like to try to implement. Like for instance, there's this thing called Agile. Uh, for those of you out there, take a look at Agile. It's it's a, a different concept on how to basically uh, get things done amongst a group. But we'll we'll probably look at it a little bit more later on. But yeah, the stand up meeting that's a big thing. Hey Ed, how about this uh, this three C's? Were you hitting those next? I, actually, it was so much information here, Brian. I really, I kind of wasn't, but I mean, we can talk about it a bit. I found it. I found uh, it kind of. <laughs> yeah, I know. I got. I, I've got it right here, and I found it kind of be to be. Oh, here we go. It it was kind of uh, interesting because when you think about how he sets this up, he he uses this three C's things about create, collaborate, and connect. But it's it's the idea behind it to me like makes total sense. Like I notice how much energy I have in the mornings, and I I, I count. I'm I'm thinking about it as like my energy levels, right? So in the morning, I have a lot of energy. Usually after lunch, we get tired and then we grab another, you know, like a, another little oomph after, you know, the lunch period and then the evening period. I'm actually the opposite. Like I I have a little more energy uh, after lunch than I do at the start of the day. Well, and everything depends on gym schedules, right? But like I said, I like to ride my bike at lunchtime and I find I have a lot more energy after riding that bike uh, during lunch. So that would be mean that my C for create would actually be an afternoon thing where with Kevin's example, his, he creates in the morning, but that's also self-awareness. That goes back to the emotional intelligence piece to understand ourselves and know when your strengths and weaknesses are, you know what I mean? Like first thing in the morning, I mean, my mind is busy and, and I'm not as creative because I'm thinking about all right emails and I got to email this person back and that person back and this person. But usually when I come back in the office at, at one, mm-hmm. I usually have an opening at least for about 30 minutes to an hour. And that's when I really, so if I got to do a slide for something to brief for a mission or something, that's when I like to work on that as after lunch. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I just, I really enjoy it. I, I love what he has to say about this whole crowd in your calendar. I mean, he goes, he goes in pretty good depth about it too. Yeah. And you know, I was just thinking, Brian, we may actually have to do like maybe a uh, influences time management episode because 
that's this whole chapter. I we, I mean, we've been doing about twenty minutes already just on this chapter. Oh, absolutely. Um, and, and it's because and we didn't even cover everything. But we also want the listeners to go out there and maybe get the book, and they'll find some more stuff. And maybe the stuff that appeals to you and I, so like energy management for you, maybe a listener may not find that as interesting, but maybe they'll find it more interesting on. Uh, instantly increasing productivity, how a CEO instantly increased productivity. So I would definitely encourage people to buy this book. There's something in this book. You will learn something from this book. I can tell you right now that you know, throughout it's bits and pieces and I have to go back and look at stuff too because I'd be like, hey, what did I read about that in chapter three? And I'll go back and I'll look it over and stuff and I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, I got that. And then I'll try to implement it because it's not like you can just implement everything that you you uh, are looking at you you it takes time it just takes a little bit of time and and then effort and then realizing hey i don't have everything figured out it's okay to use outside sources yeah absolutely 100 percent. all right brian so uh that's chapter six not briefly but briefly and i believe you got something great for us in chapter seven it is also going to go against how we're normally uh led to believe oh yeah i like this one and I want to start this one up exactly like he started it, and then we'll get into it. But here it is. I was leading a team of about 250 people, and one of my direct reports, Sean, let me know that he had a tough conversation with one of his direct reports. She had a long list of grievances, but basically she accused me of playing favorites, he began. Sean was one of my best team members and totally committed to the company. He was in the office working by 6 or 7 in the morning and was still there when most people were heading home at night. He was also known for having a bit of a temper and for joking and teasing team members. I immediately cringed thinking this was going to turn into an HR headache that I just didn't have the time to stomach for. So what did you say? I was hoping he had a good defense. I told her she was right. He said with a chuckle. I do play favorites. What? Up until that time, I had a simplistic view of fairness. Managers shouldn't be biased or attached to some team members more than others. They should treat everyone on their team the same. In fact, I probably thought it was unethical to play favorites. Sean, in what could be seen as a case of mentoring up, proceeded to explain his leadership style. I told her I do play favorites. I spend more time with my high performers than my low performers. I give more opportunities to to those who show potential. I even handle mistakes differently for those who rarely make them than those who make them all the time. This idea intrigued me, and I was still worried about his upset employee. I asked, so what was her response to that? She said, okay. So tell me what I need to do to become a favorite. Now, doesn't that, I mean that like I think about that right there, Ed, and it, and that's that idea of what do I need to do to become better mentality. You're going to have certain people Ed, that are just totally not even they're not going to be on board and they're going to try to, you know, they're going to be all upset and it's like, "Oh, it's not fair." But in a sense, I'm like, "Wow, you know, that's basically you're telling that person, "Hey, if you want me to make an investment in you, you need to show that there's a reason why I'm investing in you. Yeah, it's interesting too, right? Like, I, I think I, I kind of like, so I like the attitude of the employee. Okay, 
No, no, I don't have a problem with it. But tell me how I can be the favorite. I like that part. Oh, yeah. Now, let me tell you this, though. If and let's just say that was a situation that happened with us or with someone with an organization. I would not have a problem with it as long as the leader is telling the subordinate what it is that they need from them and, you know, a roundabout way to increase their performance and that they could earn that favoritism type attitude versus because you have these, these, you know, I've met them before, man, where you have people who say, oh yeah, I, I play favorite. And then somebody will say, well, how do I, how do I become a favorite? And their answer, that leader's answer would be, oh, I, I don't like, I, I will, I will never, you'll never be one of my favorites or something like that. And it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Everyone deserves a chance. I do believe in that type of equality, but at the same time, some people do outperform and you have to show them more attention so they'll continue to outperform. And, you know, not too long ago, I had this young man, uh, he he didn't do so well on something and he actually quit on something. And I, I pulled him in my office and I said, hey, I need to sit down and talk with you. And then he said, oh, what's going on? And I said, listen, when I got here, I made an investment in you. In my investment, I need a return investment. If not, I'm pulling my money just like I would pull out a stock. And he uh, he shook his head yes, and he was like, understood. What do you need from me? And I explained to him what I needed, and he got after it. To me, I think people do relish in the idea of their pride and the fact that somebody believes in them, and they do like that affirmation and positivity, but sometimes you just have to be direct with them. What are your thoughts? Yeah, so that actually reminds me, a soldier of mine, it's really crazy. So he quit at the range um, and really said, yeah, I'm not doing this. Uh, And he was new, new, young soldier. And, you know, him and I had a discussion about it, like a lengthy discussion about it, because I wasn't there. One of my peers was there and they were all up in arms and they wanted to, like, relieve him and or like, you know, chapter him and all this stuff. So after we had our discussion, his work performance started getting better and better. Now, he was a young guy at the time. Fast forward two years, we're deployed, and he was absolutely part of my little E4 mafia that I've talked about before. He was one of my go-getters. So he evolved because, I mean, when he quit on that range, I, I had a very negative thought about him. Like, I was very negative on him. And over time, you know, he earned that back and – uh yeah, so you can evolve uh, into the favorite. He wanted to do better, and and that was the big thing. Now, he did end up getting out the Army, but he's doing great out the Army too, and I still hear from him from time to time. So, uh, yeah, that's a that's a big thing, that favoritism thing. But, you know, I, I, my whole career, don't play favorites. You can't be favorite. And in our career, it gets, I think it's a little bit – I think it's a slippery – it can be a slippery slope because some people are favorites for the wrong reasons. But some, like for me, if you're a hard worker, it's a good chance you're going to be in that favorite circle. I just like people that get after it and, and like to get dirty and get sweaty and get working. So, oh yeah, that's how to be a favorite for Ed. If you wanted to know, <laughs> and you know, Ed, uh, in this uh, this particular document that you'd sent me, there's a key idea here, and I I read it and I've read it and I've read it. It's very short, but it makes total sense when I read it. It says the most unfair thing to do is to treat everyone the same. And I couldn't agree more. 
And it's not now yeah. we can't say we're not talking about like we're treating people the same because everyone's equal. Yes, everyone is equal as in equality. But when it comes to performance, there's a difference, right? What is the difference between favoritism and playing favorites? Well, there is a difference. Playing favorites means I'm showing you more attention uh, to be because of your performance versus favoritism is I always pick you for all the good things just because I like you. There's a difference, right? Um, I'm going to show you more attention. I'm going to help you through your performance and and, and get you better and, and, and set you up for more success. <clears throat> That's that right there is, you know, you playing favorites. But when it comes to favoritism, if I always, if I have Ed and Schmuckatelli, and Schmuckatelli is my favorite, and I'm always letting him not go, you know, to duty, and I don't put him on a duty roster, and um, I decided to uh, make sure he gets his awards and all that stuff, and his NCORs look really good or whatever. And then Ed, I'm like, well, I'm going to make sure Ed just pulls duty all the time. Uh, he's not getting an award because he hadn't really performed, and I remember that one time where he did this one thing. Um, oh, and by the way, his NCORs, we're going to have to really make it show reflect so he doesn't get promoted and you know, when he competes against Schmuckatelli, Schmuckatelli wins. To me, that, that's right there. That's favoritism, and you can't do that, right? And I've seen it before where people do that, and it turns a culture into a very toxic culture. And it basically, it's pitting people against each other. Now, some people may think it's okay to pit people against I can tell you safely right now, that's the worst idea in the world. You will not have any type of collaboration. You won't have new ideas. You're literally going to turn everyone against everyone. And that that can that could be a problem. But let's think about this, Ed. Should high performers and low performers in the same role be compensated the same? What do you think? Uh, so I'm going to say that that is inaccurate. And I'm going to kind of borrow from Mr. Cruz because, uh, you know, he talks about the uh, Chicago Bulls, the 1991 Chicago Bulls. Oh, yeah. Am I going to treat Michael Jordan like I treat John Paxson? Is Michael Jordan and John Paxson going to get equal pay? Like, let's be honest here, right? Um, And he talks about the book, The Jordan Rules, which became a whole, I remember that being a big deal. Yeah, you can't like the twelfth guy on the basket on the Chicago Bulls in nineteen ninety one is not being compensated the same way as Michael Jordan or Scottie Pippen for that matter, because one's a high, two of them are high performers. You know, you have to recognize that. So it's the same thing. Now, what I one thing and I think he talks about it in this chapter is those low performers are on time; they monopolize a leader's time. And that's one thing the army I've always always bugged me because if I have a low performer and let's say we decide we're going to put him out the military or her out the military. Right now, I have to send another non-commissioned officer leader to escort them around. Well, what's happening to their soldiers in their absence? Because they're giving all their time to this low performer, even if we're not kicking them out. Now, this low performer, you know, uh, sometimes when they have to go to drug and alcohol counseling, they have to be accompanied by a leader. So these things are eating up that leader's time, but his high performers are not getting that same attention, and that's that's not fair to me. Performance-based time management, uh, you know, dealing with like that crud your calendar we talked about just a few minutes ago. If I'm setting aside time to counsel and mentor people, I may I may give Schmuckatelli 15 minutes more with you know 
to help him out to really help develop him even further where he's at versus I might not, I might take that to 15 minutes from yours. You know, it, it just, I think I definitely have to say though, that I think that the standards should be out there for compensation of if you're able to achieve this, this is what you get for it. Um, it's kind of like, yeah, let's say for instance, uh, compensation with, uh, sales and you get, uh, what do you get that? You get the kickback for sales. What is that? Commission. Commission. Yeah. You get commission. So commission based sales, those are key. Just think about it. If you sell more than Schmuckatelli, then you deserve more kickback or commission from whatever the selling is versus if Schmuckatelli only sells five units, but you sold a hundred units. Well, does Schmeckatelli really deserve just as much as you? Because obviously he didn't do as much. Well, let's think about it performance in general then. My time. My time could could be, because it's, it's everyone's time is precious, but let's say my time to mentor. That could be a form of commission for doing well at whatever organization. Now, does it sound selfish or all these other things? I, I don't think so. I personally feel like that if I... If I can further develop those around me, then I will. And the big thing about this too is I think this really falls back on talent management. Because if you're hiring the right people, you don't have to worry about playing favorites as much. Yeah, I think so talent management is super important. I think it goes back to hiring the the right person. So that that initial interview. So let's think about what you and I at the academy and we sat on some interviews uh, together, right? So we asked these certain questions to try to make sure we were bringing the right person uh, into the organization. We wanted to have that fit. We wanted to have somebody who was going to have the ability to instruct or facilitate young, impressionable soldiers uh, and not cause us problems. Or we, you know, I mean, and, and you're not 100 percent. Like We hired the one who just could not pass an evaluation. Right. And we sent him back to his unit. We didn't kick him out the army. He, was, he had good uh, evaluations. He was a good soldier. He just, that wasn't his talent to instruct for whatever reason. Actually, there's two while you and I were there that I know of that had to be sent back. But th- that's part of the hiring process. So think about it, three years of hiring people to work at that academy, and we sent two back to their units oh, yeah. uh, prematurely because they couldn't get certified, right? That's, that's not a bad percentage if you really think about it. But that goes back to hiring the right person mm-hmm. is what we were trying to do and managing their talents. You don't, you know, and, and the interview is supposed to, and I got it. Sometimes they could give us answers that just, they were the answers that they knew we wanted to hear. But in a lot of instances, we got honest feedback and, and we hired some outstanding uh, people to work there. Absolutely. And you want to fill certain areas no matter what. So it's funny because when Kevin goes a little bit further, he goes into and he talks about, um, uh, he doesn't. He did an interview on the Lead X show, and and an individual, uh, Dave Munson, basically kind of ana- had an analogy about this whole the right hiring of people for performance. And this is what he says: If I were hiring for someone to fetch sticks out of the pond in front of the house, and a cat applies for the job, and it has a master's degree in stick fetching, and then a lab shows up and he's all wet, I would totally hire the lab. I wouldn't ask the cat to go swimming all day long fetching <laughs> sticks, which totally makes sense because you may hire that person, but they may not be really that good at it 
versus experience and understanding all that. So really, you as the employer or the hiring official, whatever, you really can you can tackle favoritism before the person even works there because you can do you have the right measures in place to hire the right people for the right job. If I need people to sell widgets, I'm looking for somebody who's got some background in sales and can show me the performance they've done. Now, could they possibly have have a degree in it and they come out of out of college and all that stuff? Yeah, I got it. But I, I'm experience always to me outweighs education. When I say education, I mean but like going to school and doing you know book work and all that stuff. Always. What are your thoughts? So in all my reading, I read all these different uh, military history books, you know, Patton, Rommel, uh, Montgomery, uh, Colonel Hackworth. And a lot of them say pretty much, um, you know, it's one thing to learn tactics in the classroom. And Patton was really huge on that. There's, it's one thing to learn it in the classroom. It's something else to execute it on the battlefield. And that's really what you're talking about. Like, until you... You know, so you can go to the range, right? We go to range all the time. But until you experience a bullet whizzing by you, you don't know what it's like to be in a firefight. Um, Now, the insanity of General Patton, he actually, to get that experience, stood up on a range where he was down by the targets, you know, the, the old school. You pull it down and you were sitting in this bunker and then you put the target up, people shoot. Well, he actually stood up as they were shooting the targets to get the feel for what it would sound like for a bullet to whiz by him. Insanity and absolutely unrecommended. But that's kind of goes back to that though. Like I can book teach you all day, but you don't know. You don't know. Um, uh, oh, this week, Lone, uh, the uh, producer of Lone Survivor. I was listening to a podcast with him. I forget his name, but he was on the Team Never Quit podcast with Marcus Luttrell. And he says, I want to make this movie, but I need to, I could read about Afghanistan, but I need to experience it. And they actually take him, I think it was to Iraq, to get some kind of feel for it. Uh, so that's the same idea, right? Like you don't know until you experience it. That experience is where the education, excuse me, ooh, the experience is where that education really comes uh, comes through. So, And that's why we teach experiential learning now in our military school system. Yeah, and I can definitely say that, you know, understanding experience is a key point. Now, what he does in this book, he he talks about he talks about how he gets to know his team members or those who are going to become team members to make sure that he gives them the right job or the right tasks that he knows that they're being assigned what they need to to perform. He asks questions like this. If you could be doing any job at all, what would it be? Or when was the last time you felt you were in the zone? You know, when you lost all track of time, what were you doing? Or how about this? Mm. What would you like to be doing five years from now? And finally, here's the last one he had on here. What do you hate doing? What tasks are super boring to you? Now, I can tell you right now, there's a lot of things. Like I, One of the things my wife, she'll tell you. I hate telephones. I hate answering the telephone. I hate calling on the telephone. You name it. If it's dealing with a telephone, yeah, I despise it. Now, I never had that problem before. Before I went recruiting, 
it broke me of it. I was just like, I don't want to call people. Like, for instance, if she says, hey, I need you to call such and such, you know, so we can do whatever with this account. <laughs> and I will, this is normally what yeah. I say to her is, honey, go ahead and make the phone call. I'll, uh, I'll just go ahead and give him approval to talk to you. I hate talking <laughs> oh on the phone, man. So, Brian, my wife is going to laugh so hard when she hears this because this is absolutely my life. And I don't, I didn't recruit. It, I don't know where it come from. It wasn't like that back in the day, but man, I hate the phone. And my wife, this week, uh, we, we use our Amazon. We have an Amazon credit card. We get points. So we'll use it, pay it off, whatever. So we used it. Uh, to try to pay for a trip and it got blocked because we're in Europe and we hadn't told them that. And she's like, Oh, you got to call and unblock the, the Amazon credit card. And I was like, Ugh. and I didn't mention it again the rest of the day. And then right before we go to bed, she goes, Hey, you still got to call <laughs> Amazon. Oh. I don't, I don't know what you want me to tell them. Yeah. Like I was being so resistant because I just hate the phone so much. I've had my daughter threaten to disown me. And not speak to me because I wasn't calling her enough because I hate the phone so much, man. Like, I had to set an alarm to remind me to call my daughter just to keep a good relationship with her. I hate the phone. <laughs> so it's just funny. Once again, it's why we're connected, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly it, man. It, you know, my wife, she'll she'll definitely know exactly what I'm saying. when I, I Normally, I like to let her know that I feel like she has a better presence on the phone and she can just, she can get what she wants. So I really think it's best if she does it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm going to try that. So let's, let's, let's round this out. We're totally going to skip some of the stuff in here because I really think people need just need to read the book or get the audio book and, you know, listen to it or read it themselves. But I wanted to get towards the end where he's talking about playing favorites in the military and, the reason I say this is because you and I, we connect with what was said here. And it's really talking about how certain people will, like for instance, we have a lot of different extra jobs on top of our regular job. So I may have, you know, for instance, I know you're you're in, in supply. You do a lot of logistics and supply. So you may have to like do deal with ordering, reordering, receiving, things like that in your past. But on top of that, you may also be a master resilience trainer. You may be a sharp uh, representative. You may be an EOL or EOL uh, equal opportunity leader. You might be a UPL or unit prevention leader where you do your analysis and stuff. So we have all these little extra things. But the thing is, is we can't just throw certain people at certain extra jobs. We have to really know who's good at what, right? So let's say a radio operator, and that's that was kind of an example on here is I'm not going to put somebody as a radio operator for, as my commo person if they don't even know how to use the, the radio. I need to, I want to find the right person who can do the things I need. And another thing that I'm looking into right now, so right now I run what I call the first sergeant PT program. And what that really is, is it's the soldiers hadn't quite passed the APFT or something happened and they didn't pass it. All right. So I'm taking the negativity out and I'm throwing it into positive. So we don't call it APFT failure PT because they're not failures. They just didn't do what needed to be done. That's the way I, that's the way I, I turn, you know, I, I coin it. Right. So we first sergeant PT program. Okay. Right now we've gone through, we're on our fourth week of it, but I think after I hit about eight weeks, I want to be able to 
I want to be able to transition this over to a capable non-commissioned officer so they can also reap the benefits of not only helping other people improve, but also show that they can do things outside of their jobs. But I have to monitor my non-commissioned officers to see which ones are really good at PT, but not only good at it, are they good at planning it? And are they good at developing others around them? Because just because you're a PT stud, and we've you've seen this probably a hundred times, just because you're PT doesn't mean you're good at getting other people to do what needs to be done. Just because you can do a thousand push-ups doesn't mean, or and and run a twelve-minute mile, two mile doesn't mean that you can help somebody run their two mile within the the passing time frame. So I need to be able to monitor and say, okay, who can actually work with? Who can encourage and persuade others and use the power of persuasion and positivity to get these soldiers? who are probably having a bad day, having a bad week, having a bad month, something's going on with them and they're un- unable to pass. And that's that's one of the things so I found I found it very touching that you know that they t- the author talked about this and I was like that's exactly what I'm doing. That's what I want to do in my organization. If I need somebody to do something outside of their regular job, I have to monitor them and then I'll spend a little bit of time with them too to help develop them further in that area. Yeah, no, and I think one of the key things is like uh, everybody's not good at understanding interpersonal tech. Like everybody's not under, uh, good at reading people because so I can tell you that you, when you have like for your instance, if you're a screamer, that soldier may not get there. Like they may not buy in. Like you have to understand, you know, how, how to manage those two things. Um, and, 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 you know, and when he talks about that, you know, Hey, this guy's good at combo, but he's not good at PT, but this guy's good at PT. So too many times in the army, I've seen that where they're like, Hey, he's a PT stud. Okay. But he's a terrible leader. Like, you know, I had an instance where I kept getting told, Oh, but he's a 300 on his PT test and he's air assault and he's this. And then the same sergeant was cheating at the qualification range by punching holes with his pin into his target while walking back to the firing line. So visible to his, his subordinates. So yeah, he's a PT stud outstanding. Right. Mm -hmm. But look at the example he's setting as he cheats right in front of his soldiers, even so cheating's bad, but now you're doing it in front of them. And then he comes back and goes, Oh, I shot this with the power of the pin. So when we went to give him his non-judicial punishment, you know, I, I actually got a little smart with the, at the time, the first arm, because, you know, I was told him, I said, yeah, but he's, he's PT stud and air assault first arm. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it doesn't make you a great leader, stuff like that. And we have to understand that because he was a favorite just based off of those qualifications, but he was a terrible NCL. So no names. <laughs> All right, so let's end this chapter off. I want to just throw three things out there to get people's brains going with it. So the first one. All right. Think of what motivates each person on your team and try to identify that so you know how to connect with them. That's one. And if you remember correctly, in a science of likability, we talked about finding that positive aspect and when you see somebody bring that up, because it helps create that that conducive environment and positivity. So think about what motivates each one of your team members, members on your team and then engage them on that. So second thing, how can you reward financially or in other ways 
your very top performers. Because if they're performing at the higher level of others, then they deserve reward. And then finally, what can you do this week to recruit your star team members? Who are you going to look at and say, I'm making an investment in you, just like I'm investing in the stock market. I'm putting money down. I'm buying shares of your stock, the stock of you. How am I getting my return on investment? And let them tell you. Because they'll tell you, oh, yeah, definitely, blah, blah, blah. I can do this, and I'll be able to get this done. Great. Show me how you get it done. What's the uh, deadline? Got it. Go. So those are the three things I want us to think about. Other than that, let's move on to the next chapter, Chapter 8, Ed. So Chapter 8 was interesting, Brian. And honestly, we had a talk today and kind of honed me in a little better on Chapter 8. But Chapter 8 is reveal everything. And now, after speaking to you today... Chapter eight really has resonates with me a little more. The key idea of chapter eight is transparency builds trust and enables faster decision making. Right. And so this is one of those things. So in the army, unfortunately, we have a lot of people that just say yes to the senior. Like, yes, sir. That sounds like a great idea, even if it's not. And instead, you know, they should be transparent about it. Because you need somebody who disagrees with you so and then helps you understand their perspective. Or, you know, they can stress test what you're talking about or something like that. But that transparency in an organization is key. Now, in, in this chapter, he does talk about transparency of everything to include salaries. I'm not I'm not qualified to speak how that would work in a civilian sector. That everybody knows everybody's salary. And here he says it's it's pretty important, but but yeah, so do you feel that there are too many secrets in your company? You know, that's, that's one of the key questions for this. When we have those secrets, Brian, like, you know, the ripple effect is everybody doesn't understand the big picture, right? Would you agree? Mm-hmm. Oh, and yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's why transparency is, is so important. And he talks about three areas of radical transparency fertilizes great culture And I just want to hit on these three areas. So the first one, radical transparency provides the situational awareness your team members need to make good decisions quickly. That is one of the reasons you want everything to be out there. And that's what you said. You said it's good to have everything kind of out there because uh, maybe not the lowest level subordinate, but even then they're still making some decisions. But for those team leaders or what have you under us, we want them to be able to make decisions. Let's go back to my favorite chapter, Close Your Open Door. If they're not able to make uh, good decisions, guess what they're going to do? Got a minute? So that's everything he's talking about, I think when Kevin Cruz, he really ties everything is tied in some way or shape or form. And I think this is one right here. Like, you know, so you want your leaders to make good decisions. So, Brian, you work for somebody, right? Absolutely. Uh, they're transparent. So when you when they're transparent, like uh, it's just easier to to make decisions. Now where I work at, you know, we're making decisions for you know um, whatever training objectives in the European theater. But these captains, captains who are in, in my organization, they're kind of the low guys on the on the officer side of the totem pole because we don't have a lot of lieutenants. But these captains are charged with making decisions dealing with a host nation, dealing with a unit that's uh, rotational, whatever. But if we don't understand the objectives of the commander, 
How can we make these decisions? It's it's impossible. Absolutely. Uh, and then let me let me hit up real quick with that. Oh, go ahead. Absolutely. Yeah. So there is no time for information seeking. That's like the very next sentence of what you read. There is no time for information seeking. And I can safely say that if the information within the organization is constantly transparent, being passed around, and everyone is involved, they can make those split decisions set uh, um, decisions on what needs to be done off of the information they have. But let's say the information isn't transparent. It's not easily accessible. And now I have to spend the time and my crowd my calendar, as we spoke, to find someone who has that information. Then I have to learn about that information. Then I have to, I have to process that myself and how I can use it. And then I have to go back and make the adjustment. So really, if you have the information, you can make a sound decision, make good courses of action. And then when you have to go see that person, you can literally just bring them a plan and say, this is what I think we can do. What do you think about this, this, or this? Yeah. Because you already have the information needed. And I can tell you from personal experience, and this has happened before, working on aircraft, there's always those guys who are really good at knowing the system and know how to fix things faster. One of the things that used to make me so mad was when people would hoard knowledge, hoard knowledge on how to fix a particular system or, or how a particular uh, problem was fixed and what signs and what, what did they look for to fix that problem. And the reason being is they were selfish. They wanted all the kudos to themselves. They always wanted to be put on those special type missions where they get to go fix the hard problems and everybody else got to deal with all the other junk, right? And to me, I thought to myself, how in the world are we really developing a good team that can do whatever we need whenever we need them? How are we developing them to be better? I mean, okay, yeah, earlier we talked about picking favorites. Yes, picking favorites who are good at certain areas, but at the same time, we still have to remember that everyone needs mentorship, and if people just aren't cutting the mustard, you have to know how to let them go, get rid of them, but you still have to share the information. So, But that's my little soapbox on that piece, buddy. <laughs> no, I mean, and it all makes sense, honestly, um, because, you know, when I was coming up, like people understood how to manipulate the system. And then, you know, what you set up single points of failure because now that person knows how to, you know, to do the monthly report. And they're the only ones that know how to do it. And this was actually the case with me uh, early. So we do this, uh, this management report and, now this guy has something happen. Maybe he has an illness in his family and he has to go on leave. But he's the single point of failure because he didn't want to share information and nobody encouraged that. Now we're trying to figure it out. And, you know, so that's why that information sharing is important. And then we've talked about several times. I want to groom you to replace me. So I can't groom you to replace me if I don't share with you what I know already. Um, so that's, that's part of it. Like, it's so good to be transparent and have a good understanding. And, and that's kind of, so the second thing that, uh, Kevin talks about radical transparency directly drives employee engagements. He says, in my own experience as a business leader, and based on my previous analysis of over 10 million employee surveys, communication is one of the top four drivers of employee engagement. How many times have we talked about 
uh, communication on this show. Uh, we talk about all the time. And he just goes on to say, employees want information. It's impossible to overload uh, with information. You cannot over-communicate, right? Now, you may say, you may communicate, and there may be some stuff, which that's what we do. We sort it, right? Okay, that's relevant. That's eh, that's good. So I have a guy that likes to, he talks a lot at work, but some of what he says is very good, and some of it is just like how his personality, I guess. It's not as important, but. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, it's not possible to over-communicate with an organization. You agree, Brian? Oh, absolutely, Um, to a certain extent. It's funny, I was proving a point with a couple of my young Sergeant E5s just the other day, and uh, the the thing was is I was telling them about a certain individual just kept talking and talking, but they were talking in circles. And I'm like, did you, did you grasp onto anything? What was going on there? And they, they were like, well, he just kept saying the same thing over and over. I said, exactly. Did he ever, did he provide any type of relevant information that helped us become a better organization at all? Or was it just jargon? And they were like, well, it just felt like jargon. I was like, exactly. So sometimes over communicating could be just garbage garbage in garbage out type situation so yeah but yeah I, i'm totally down with that whole communicating piece and then the other thing that he talks about and we used to we used to be required to do this to go to schools uh to nco school professional development schools and i don't think it's a requirement anymore but he talks about uh 360 evaluations employee surveys digital idea boxes to find out kind of what the feel is of the organization i like the 360 survey because Actually, I sent one to you and you probably didn't fill it out. Uh, when you do these 360 surveys, at least for the one we use in the military, so you're sending it to a minimum of like five of your superiors that you've worked for over the last, I think, two years. You're sending it to some of your peers and you're sending it to your subordinates. I think it's three. Oh, actually, I think it's three seniors, five peers, and then five subordinates, right? Well, they fill this survey out and it gives you feedback. And it says, Here, here's a list of your strengths according to this. Here's your weaknesses. And then it gives you some comments. So that's a 360 evaluation and it provides some transparency in me as a leader of where I'm at in the eyes of the people in my organization, whether it be senior, peer, or subordinate alike. So that's why that one's that one's pretty good. And then the third thing is radical transparency drives trust, which drives engagement. Here's the bottom line with this one, Brian. Radical transparency. If I'm only giving good news all the time because I want to be light not likable if i'm always giving good news must everybody around me realizes that and they're like but what is he not telling us and then that is the seed of that distrust in an organization or within my team they understand yeah he's only given us half the truth right so i created that that issue of trust issue and, and the stats that he gives the science he gives is uh in a survey the percent of people that say they actually trust their CEO dropped 12 points in one year from 49% in 2016 to 37% in 2017. And, you know, that, that trust is important because that's your leadership capital. That's like one of the biggest pieces of it. At least that's what I think. So when our leaders only share good news, like I said, we're building distrust, Brian. What do you think? Oh, yeah. And I, you know what, though? 
uh, he gets he gets into this whole thing also where we talk about knowledge is power and sharing is power, and that's where I think trust is built. Because when you shared information with me, I've tr- I trust you enough to where I'm going to share information back. But if I notice you're doing things and you're you're performing better than everybody else, and no one else is getting any you know the information that you got, they're not sharing. Then you're not sharing it with them. My trust is lost. And you'll actually see people kind of segregate off to other, you know, their own little subgroups and whatnot because they don't want to be a part of that with you. So trust is trust is a key thing in the organization. And he talks, he talks, he says here, knowledge is power was the old way of thinking, but sharing is power is the new way. And I, I couldn't agree with that more. And it's actually he brought that up because of McChrystal. So again, we talk about communication, we talk about knowledge, right? And we talk about sharing this knowledge. Those to me, for this chapter, those are three of the key components of this chapter. Like I said, this chapter is actually kind of lengthy. Uh, he also talks about open book management. Mm-hmm. Open book management is a practice in which every employee from CEO to janitor has access to all the organization's financial information and is trained in how to understand it. So key here to me was, He says from CEO all the way to the janitor has some kind of understanding of an organization's finances. And and he goes on later to talk about um, the three pieces of it. So know and teach the rules. Every employee should be given the measure of business success and taught how to understand them. So, again, we're going to the janitor. I'm I'm not even going to concentrate on the top piece, but the janitor, he's saying, should be able to understand Measures of the business success. What what constitutes success in an organization, right? So for us, that lowest private should know what is making what makes our organization successful. And I think that the big picture understanding for those young privates is it'll cut down some of the complaining. Because a lot of times, as I matured as a soldier, not just an NCO, I realized that a lot of the complaining we did as privates and specialists is because we just didn't understand the big picture of the organization. Absolutely. So if we know that and we teach, yeah, okay, maybe we're talking over a young soldier's head, right? Maybe some things were like, well, you know, this is this and this is that. And they're like, huh? Like, okay, got it. Let's try not to use jargon and acronyms to help understanding. But at the same time, it also makes us sharper because I know that this might be over his head. How can I reach that audience for understanding? And then the next one is follow the action and keep score. Every employee should be expected and able and enabled to act on his or her knowledge to improve performance. All right. This is just my favorite thing. Decentralized command, really. Um, but you know what I mean? Like, and it cuts back on the got a minute, just giving them that power. If they make a mistake, then okay. Talk to them about it and, and, and move on. But, you can't really hammer down on them either, especially if it's something minor, because you don't want them to be afraid to make a decision uh, another time, right? And then provide a stake in the outcome. Every employee should have a direct stake in the company's success and risk of failure. So I worked for uh, Walmart. I had moved to Canada. I got out the Army at one point. And one of the things that they do is they have a, I can't remember what it's called. It's been a long time. 20 years. Um, one of the things they do, though, is based on their loss prevention numbers, they have a kickback to the employees. So that drives that vigilance to watch because, you know, 
sometimes people be like, not my problem if they steal. I don't care. But it, for me, I'm like, I'm, I'm vigilant about making sure people aren't stealing because it's going to affect me later financially uh, in that bonus that I receive. Right. The other thing is the more money that the store made at Walmart. Now, this was Walmart Canada, but I'm sure it's the same. Uh, they, they are two different companies ish. Anyway, so one of the things they would do is it was called profit sharing. I do remember this one. And basically, whatever if that store did well, then it would equate to some kind of stock return for you on the backside. So you would pay for stock throughout the year and then your kickback, your plus up from the company would be based on your store's individual performance. So like for us at the time, we were one the only store within maybe an hour, maybe an hour and a half. We were the only Walmart and then they built another one within 20 to 30 minutes. So that hurt us in that profit sharing, but, but that's, you, we had a stake in what the company was doing and how they were doing. So that's that buy-in that we like to talk about, you know? Um, and then you could go in the book, you could read about sharing salaries. Cause it definitely is a, in, in, in there. And I know that's a big, t- you know, people are like, Whoa, share salaries. Wait a minute. But it also talks about how to negotiate that salary. And if I pay Brian this much money to do the job, Cause you know, that says, he says that's what he was making before in our interviewing process. And I got somebody else coming in to do the same job, but they're coming straight out of college. Am I going to pay them exactly what I'm paying Brian? Probably not. We're going to pay them a little bit less because mm-hmm. they have a lot less experience. And, and that's what he goes into there. Yeah. I like, I like the idea of reveal everything. I like it more after talking to you this morning, Brian. Um, at first I was like, Whoa, wait a minute. But really in the army, I transparency in the army does. And I, I've seen the, the backside I've seen the, you know, uh, well, even for you. So if you, Brian, are not transparent, in your organization and you go and leave to visit your family, right? Your phone is going to ring nonstop because whoever you left there was unaware of things. Mm-hmm. They didn't have the information necessary. So transparency is important for that too, because you want to enjoy your time with your family. I, I've always been told that when, when you step away as a leader, if everything flows and, and you're not getting those phone calls, then you're doing a good job. You're doing an excellent job as a leader because the organization just continued to motor on along the way. So what are your thoughts, Brian? Uh, my first thought is, is you just made a big point that I needed to add to my to-do list. Oh, wait, I'm not doing to-do list. <laughs> I need to crowd my calendar with about who's going to take my spot when I go on leave later on this year. <laughs> but no, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, with that. Now, have I seen where a, a team can perform very well without the leader there because the leader actually is just garbage? Yeah, I've seen that before. I've, I've seen I, that. Yeah. that. And that's very seldom. That's very seldom. It's not always because normally that means that person was never engaged in the first place mm-hmm. and all the information was already kind of, you know, if you look at like a, how, how the information was flowing, the information was never going through that person. And it was going through uh, maybe somebody below them or not, or somebody that worked for them, a subordinate. And so it was never really, nothing was ever hitting them yes. at all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Then that that happens. You know it does. Yeah, I've, I've um, been part of that. But when so. it comes down to, oh, I know you yeah. have. Believe me, I know for a fact. <laughs> <laughs> but with that, I think about it and I think to myself, if you're going to, you got to be able to do these things to be able to trust one another and to create that that organization 
kind of just I, it's it's so hard to really say exactly but you want people to be able to literally if i know there's something happening that i i can count on ed he's going to move in with swiftness to do xyz and then i'll be able to do the rest of this stuff and then i'll see schmuckatelli I know they're going to come in and they're going to do all this, but it's all because of transparency and because mm-hmm. the information flow. Without that flow, you've got nothing. You literally have nothing. Instead, what you have is an organization filled with confusion, constant pestering, as you said, that got a minute, that type of thing. It's just all those different things, will they will basically diminish the performance of the organization. Your, your profits are going to turn into... Uh, basically deficits, and that's it. So yeah. without without further ado, are you good to go with that chapter, my man? Well, I got – so I'm not going to read the entire takeaway this time, but I do have one key piece for the takeaway. <laughs> uh, and basically it just goes to the hierarchical command and control structure where information flowed up and decisions flowed down made sense Yep. when the world moved at a slower pace. This world moves way too fast for that anymore. And decisions are made a lot quicker than when you and I were young privates. And 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 I'm it's the same in the civilian sector. I can almost guarantee it. So that's old, uh, old thinking. You know, now we want those decisions made at the lowest level to improve our organization's uh flexibility. That's the bottom line for this chapter. So yeah, excellent, excellent. I can't wait to get to this next chapter. You like this next chapter, you say? I do like this. Uh, I do kind of like this next chapter. Be interesting. I do too. Uh, so ne- the next chapter really, it hits home because I've learned to deal with my own uh, weaknesses and be able to you know move on from them. Or I wouldn't say my own weakness. Deal with my own faults and get past ego and pride and all that stuff because Jocko talks about that a lot, right? He talks about ego, pride, and those are those are diminishing factors within an organization. He couldn't be more correct with that. The next chapter is chapter 9, show weakness. And here's the key idea of this as we get into the discussion. The key idea, vulnerability and authenticity drive trust and engagement. All right. So we have a soldier and I'm, I'm going to go from the military point of view, and then we can dive further. So we have a soldier, and he gets in trouble, or she gets in trouble. They did something they weren't supposed to, and they had to go before the commander to be punished. Normally, right after we're done speaking or their punishment has come out, I will have a little talk with them. And I will say, don't allow that this incident to be the thing that defines who you are. Allow what you do next to be what defines you. And you often see like they look at you a little bit differently. And then I like to also sometimes pull them aside and I'll talk about my faults and tell them about in the past that I know what it's like to, you know, kind of stray from the the good ways of doing things or how you're supposed to do things. And I, you know, I've done this or I did X, Y, and Z and I probably shouldn't have done this and I probably shouldn't have put an LMTV in a pond, you know, a long time ago. But but that's the whole point is is I'm showing that vulnerability that I'm not perfect. I, to tell you the truth, I, uh, I don't envy people who act perfect all the time. 
those are the ones I'm just like, oh yeah, what kind of skeletons you got in your closet, buddy? Because I know you got something going on there, you know. But there's those people that have that that total aura around them of that nothing goes wrong and everything's perfect and everything's great and I have the most perfect life ever and I'm like yeah you're full of it <laughs> that's all I can say uh, you ever notice people like that Ed yeah a lot of people they have their cells on a pedestal but that goes back to our uh, emotional intelligence either they're aware that they're really not on that pedestal or they're delusional that they're on that pedestal but everybody's life is not perfect I, I like to think I'm, I'm i have a pretty decent life but yeah it ain't perfect there's lots of things that could be different i could have reliable internet for one but no um, outside of that yes i i've seen that a lot and actually those are those are a weakness for me because people who have their cells on this pedestal like they're just living the greatest life ever and they're flawless drive me bonkers those are the ones that make me angry. Those are the, the I'm better than you because I'm perfect. Yeah, no, those are. Oh, and that's right there. That was the key statement. That was what I was waiting for. The very last part, which you just <laughs> said that I'm better than you. Oh. That is what I don't care about everything else. It's the I'm better than you attitude because that's what they do. They'll they'll act like they're better than you. Now, let's think about this, Ed, because I've got one in my head already, and I want to, I, I can always talk about mine, and then you can talk about yours. But think about the best boss you ever had, the best one you've ever had. Did they ever share with you their own personal struggles or failures that they ever had? So right off the bat, Ed, the first person that comes to my mind is Joshua Bryan. He was a great leader to me, and actually, I can't wait. I get to reconnect with that guy here down the road. But he, he showed flaw. He did it in in different ways. For instance, physical ability. Let's just talk physical ability. Now, I'm not saying that he's not physically able to do blah, 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 whatever. But he he admitted to me at one time that he had, had, uh, he had plates and stuff in his ankles and screws and stuff. So he had a hard time running. So he was a lot slower. Now, did I look down upon him? No. But it made me think about the whole idea. Because, you know, in the Army, it, it's always been that if you could run really fast, you must be a really good leader which is totally wrong. Um, yeah. <laughs> but he completely diminished that thought process for me. I already had the idea. I knew it wasn't like that. But he helped establish that idea that just because you can run fast doesn't mean anything. It just shows that you just don't have a weakness there, and you could end up having one. Um, there's other things uh, with deal with counseling, dealing with how leadership, you know, the Simon Sinek thing, Ed, he brought Simon Sinek to me first, and that's where I got all that from. I I had no idea who that was until that last deployment we were on. That's when I found out about him. But he taught me that, and he taught me that you know you can you can learn from things and say you know what, yep, I made a mistake. And that those are the like those are the types of words or the, the words of wisdom that really really stick with me and taught me that it's okay to look at one of your soldiers and say, you know what, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have made that decision. Uh, the decision should have went X, Y, and Z instead. That That's what that's what I got from him, all right? And I can think about other leaders and other points in time that the same thing happened, but that was that's the primary one I want to talk about. What was yours, Ed? Uh, well, I mean, I've, had, I've actually, I was sitting here thinking about it, and I've actually had a few that were, 
Um, I've had a couple that were pretty transparent about uh, their weaknesses. Um, one that really kind of comes to mind, of course, is the same uh, one that recommended the science of likability. And wasn't so much that he just came out and said, hey, this is my weakness, but you kind of, he, he didn't shy away from, um, so if, if, if it was a particularly hard day and he was frustrated, he didn't shy away from openly being like, oh, oh boy. All right. Like, so he, like I said, he didn't verbalize his weaknesses, but you could, he also didn't protect them. Like you can't see that I'm weak here. Uh, I used to actually joke with him all the time because you could tell when he was frustrated because he would rub his head and you'd go in there and he would have no waves left in his hair. He had rubbed them out during that day. So you could always tell when he was, when he was frustrated, (laughs) but yeah, he, but and what Leia said, he didn't just come out and say it, but you could tell. And I think a lot of times leaders tend to try to protect that and, and hide it, you know, from, from you. Yeah. And it's funny. You said that, um, the other day I had, we were at the range. We did a range at nighttime, but early that day we did our training meeting and I was very quiet, like really, really, really quiet. I didn't do a lot of talking and I was just kind of looking down and I was just kind of, I was in thought. I really was. I was in deep thought about things, but later on that day, that night, actually, it was around, I'd say 18, 1900. One of my sergeant first classes actually approached me and said, Hey, is everything okay? I'm like, why? He's like, you just didn't seem like yourself mm. at this. So he actually per- he perceived that there was a weakness there and there, there was something going on when there really wasn't at the time, but because I was out of place. So I can see where you're talking about with with that particular leader and how you can tell. You can just tell there's something a little off about them. And it's okay to say, you know what, I'm just not having a good day. I'm just not, but you know what, it'll get better. Yeah, no, you're, you're, no, uh, you're actually um... – you're actually kind of easy to read when you're having a bad day. I've I've seen it from you before. Uh, you you're another one though. You really don't hide <laughs> your well. You don't hide your vulnerability or your weakness either. You you kind of just wear it on your sleeve, so it's it's obvious. You know, for instance, when I worked in the before they moved our classroom, if you came over there and just kind of hung out in the middle of the day, you were probably frustrated about something somebody else did, and. You didn't always be like, you know, this, this, this happened. Uh, But like, for instance, the day that somebody left a squad in the training area, uh, absolutely could tell how frustrated you were by that. Uh, The curriculum change, you you know, um, but you could also see that. uh, I think that there was times where I worked with you where I could see you wanted to erupt. You wanted to turn into the screamer to but then you showed your strength by you kind of walked away from situations first. You know, I can't think of, I want to say there was a time when you kind of blew up a little bit. Oh yeah. I do remember a time you kind of blew up a little bit, but usually you didn't. And I do remember you actually, you know, apologizing to a few people after you blew up about the gaggle behind a formation one time. But so you're, you're one, you're, you're easy to read, uh, yeah. uh, for me. And it could be a familiarity thing with me and you too, but I don't think you ever tried to be like, I'm not, I have it no is. weaknesses, uh, in the classroom, you admitted weaknesses, you know, and, and again, we were going through doing the badging together, getting the basic army instructor badge together and you admitted then strengths and weaknesses. So yeah, I think you do a good job of admitting them. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I can cut this out later if you want, Ed, <laughs> but 
there was one time, you know, there was a time where I noticed uh, a weakness with you, <laughs> and it's crazy. It was communication, and it dealt with your son. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my goodness. Like, he really, like, I could tell, and I, that's what, like, that was the one time, like, I felt like you and I connected even more than ever. It was when we talked about your son and how you're going, you know, you're just trying to deal with a situation at the time. Yep. And I thought to myself, I was like, oh my goodness, like, his son is his kryptonite. Communicating with his son is his kryptonite. And I'd never seen that of you. Like, that was like your clam up. I'm not talking about things. And I, I like, I literally forced you to talk to me about things. And then, offered up ideas and you tried them and actually when I offered the ideas I remember specifically saying no I'm not doing that and I'm like come on dude let it go just (laughs) do it and it'll be fine but but that's one of those times where I remember specifically a weakness and I thought goodness I'd never seen because you're like the gentle giant uh (laughs) but you always seem strong, tough, and, and like put together and like things came. And I watched, I literally, I thought, I was like, oh, I, now I'm seeing the little baby Edward. Oh, brother. <laughs> As in little kid. <laughs> yes, let me that, know if I wanted, if you want me to. No, nah, you don't that. need to delete, you don't delete that. You don't need to delete that. No. I mean, you're right. That's All always right. been an issue for me is communication with my son. For some reason, I don't know. We find it very difficult to communicate. And I actually think it's kind of a weakness for him too. So it's kind of mutual uh weakness. But yeah, all right. I remember that day like I'm there right now. So yeah. <laughs> we'll go with that. <laughs> <laughs> I do yeah. too. Like that was, I'm telling you, bro, that was the like one of those days where we connected, man. Yeah. It was like total connection. I think I even told my wife about yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. My wife's gonna laugh at this one too. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's think about let's let's go a little bit further, man. Let's think about this. There's there's a line between being authentic and oversharing, right? We talked about it. If you remember, what did we used to call it? We used to call it the arena, right? Oh yes, yes. We talk about there's an arena. When you're with a group of people, you're in an arena. And what you put into the re- arena can never be taken back out. So we have to kind of be careful about what we share. And to to be completely honest on this, when you're showing your weaknesses, there's certain level of weaknesses you want to show, especially as a leader, at certain times. Because it shows your ability to be vulnerable, but at the same time being authentic to the people. If you're always sharing all your weaknesses, well, then what are the subordinates going to think? They're going to think you're weak. That you're a weak individual and, you and you're not smart enough to lead them. And they will call you out. Absolutely. But if you use it at just the right time, that's what's... So there I was. I had a kid on extra duty. And he's getting ready to mop the floors in the lower part of our building. And I'm getting, I'm getting ready to leave and I'm letting him know, hey, I'm about to lock up the doors. I lock the doors. Uh, he can get back out another way. And... Before I close the door completely, I say, hey, man, I said, you know what? Remember what I what did I tell you right after this happened? You got that article 15. He said he's he told me exactly what I said earlier. Don't allow the incident to define me. Allow how I react after to be what defines me. And I said, exactly. I said, but there was a long time ago. And this is where the whole LMTV and a pond thing comes. So a long time ago when when I was a young Private, 
myself and a non-commissioned officer decided to take an LMTV four-wheel driving at a range in the middle of the night. And we just happened, it was in the winter time, and we didn't know there was a pond there. We kept driving, and all of a sudden, the front end of the vehicle just dropped, like, drastically. And we were sitting at about a 45-degree angle. And I was like, oh, no, what happened? And we couldn't go forward, and we couldn't go backwards. Basically, we lodged the front end of an LMTV inside of a pond, and it was stuck. Like, when I say it was stuck, it was, like, crazy stuck. Then I decided, hey, I can fix this. So I walked around to all these different big old trucks, and I took all their huge chains, and I decided I was going to link these chains across this pond to help pull it out, not realizing how thick of the ice it was on the front side. We were trying to pull it out forward where we should have pulled it out backwards. We're trying to pull it out forward with this Hemet, and now the Hemet universal joint from the first two axles breaks to the back two axles. So now I have a Hemet stuck. I have an LMTV stuck. And I have a, a chain going across this pond tight enough that you can walk across like a tightrope. And I told him, I said, I said, we all mess up. We all make mistakes, man. It's what you do after that matters. And I, I told him that story. But I only, and this is the key thing. Now everybody knows the story because I just told it on here. But the key thing of it is, is I used showing my weakness at the right time to kind of give him an example of it's okay if we mess up. We just have to be able to go beyond that. Anywho, <laughs> sometimes we should, I think that was a little TMI. We call it TMI. <laughs> no, no, that's a good point. I, and I, I can't really give a lot of the details, but I've used it with my daughter. My daughter was doing something she wasn't supposed to do. Her mother caught her. She's super upset. Didn't want to get on the phone with me. And, um, you know, she thought I was going to yell and scream at her, but I knew her mother had already been doing that. So I was like, it doesn't make sense for me to pile on. So I was really calm and collective. And I shared some of my uh, exploits as a youth with her. And she's like, really? <laughs> so it kind of eased, you know what I mean? Like it eased that a little bit. And I honestly think that the bond with her and I grew a little bit from it as well, because she's like, you know, I did this, this is terrible. And I could go to, I could, could have went to jail for this. And then my dad did this and then look, he's okay. It, it didn't ruin his whole life. So I think it helped her. Uh, same idea though, like sharing that. Exactly, man. Exactly. So let's, let's think about this though. If you can show weakness and you can share things with people, they feel like they can engage with you, right? Or they can talk with you. Do people in your organization feel comfortable taking risks and making mistakes? That's what's key. Because if I'm too worried about making a mistake, I am constantly going to check up with my leader to make sure it's okay. Because a if a mistake happens, <laughs> it's on him. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, right? Yeah. Exactly. I thought there was somebody really in no. your door. <laughs> but, but that's what I'm saying, though. If you... If you make a mistake, is how how are you reacting as a leader of somebody's mistake, right? I didn't get something dispatched. It's all right. We just need to make sure X, Y, and Z happens by X date, and we can get that dispatch done of the vehicle. Uh, oh, I didn't get the paperwork turned in in time for such as us to get their PCS award or the permanent change of station award. It's okay 
One, we can't let it happen again. Let's go ahead and do whatever we need to to get it pushed through. I need you to walk it through, though. Let's make sure this soldier gets recognized for what they did. But let's not do it again, right? I didn't come off the handle. I didn't lose my stuff. Yeah. And you can always replace stuff with whatever S word you want. But that's the thing is, do they feel comfortable making decisions? Yeah. And I tell I tell my uh, sergeants first class all the time, all the time, guys, I trust your I trust your ability to make a good decision that's ethically, morally, and legally correct. All the time. Like you guys, hey, make a decision. Go ahead. You got it. Because I'm building trust with them. Now, if they do something that well, I'm be like, whoa. In my mind, I'm thinking, I can't believe you thought that or that even passed your brain. But I'm not going to overreact at them. Instead, we're going to move forward. It's the Zen in me, I guess. I don't know. (laughs) So, what do you think, man? The Zen. First of all, the Zen in you just doesn't even. I wouldn't call it Zen. I would just call it that whole. I'm trying to be a better person. Listen, I've always believed in, and you know. I've always believed in the make a decision. Like um, even when I was a, a a young leader, just starting out, like you know, sitting around doing nothing, I would absolutely be like, "Hey, y'all, go home, and I'll let you know if anything's going on." If I get yelled at, I get yelled at. Who cares? It's just words and and, and maybe some push ups back then. Um, but at the same time, I sent them home. They got some extra time with their family, what have you, some quality time. I built some leadership capital with them by doing that. Do I have to tell them the next day, well, I got chewed out for you guys? No, no. That's to me, that takes away from uh, from that. But in an organization, people have to be able to make decisions. And, and, and honestly, I... As long as, you know, life, limb, eyesight, sometimes you got to take a risk. And, and when I say risk, like we, we wrap it around, you know, hey, I'm going to jump this ramp with a big wheel. I don't know why I said that. A Nitro Circus guy was on on a podcast or something. But but when we say risk, maybe it is uh, as, as, you know, hey, I'm going to get this truck dispatched instead of that truck because I think this, this, this. That's still a risk. You're still taking a chance that you may get, you know, you may get uh, yelled at later for that, for changing up. But, hey, maybe you'll get a, hey, that'll boy. You know what? I didn't think of it like that. What if that leader says that? Well, you know what? I didn't even think of that. So that that's a good call. Wow. Man, you know how good you feel as a, as a subordinate to hear that from your leadership? So, um, yeah, no, I've always been big on people making decisions. Um and just you take you de- as long as you're willing to deal with the consequences if you make a poor decision. But if you make a good, well thought out decision, all right, rock with it. Now there's limits, right? Like uh, major movements and stuff. I'm not going to make a decision that the CG or the commanding general should probably be making because that's just way above where I should be. But but I am going to deliver courses of action to him, and I may may take a chance on those, but you know, Hey, this is a riskier course of action, but I'm going to put it in there and let him, you know, be aware of it. But yeah, no, I, I like decision-making Brian, I like decision-making at the lowest possible level within reason. Exactly. And, and also making a decision within your level, or we like to say within your pay grade is definitely the right way. Final thing I want to bring up about this particular chapter, uh, not too long ago, Ed, you sent me an article and it was about saying, I don't know. And how it's okay to say, I don't know. 
And we found that I, I took that article and I spread that across all my seniors and let them know, hey, I want you to read this and then we'll talk about it later. So the, the whole point of the article is that could be one of our biggest flaws as leaders is being able to say, I don't know, using those short, small words to emphasize a weakness, saying I don't know can help build not only yourself, but also those around you. Instead of making up an answer, making up a solution, or just winging something that could get somebody hurt, injured, whatever, I don't know is a viable solution, and it shows the right amount of vulnerability. But you should always follow up that statement with, I don't know. However, we'll find out. Yes. And what you're doing, so when I said that, I don't know, that means I personally don't know. However, we'll find out. I included the others around me saying, we're going to learn together. And to me, that's that really, I think that sets the point with the whole idea of showing weakness. Do you have anything else before I read this takeaway real quick? No, I thought that was, you know, I mean, the I don't know thing is goes back. You talked about Jocko earlier. You got to check your ego and be willing to say, I don't know. I, if I don't know, I just don't know. Uh, maybe I don't. We talked about experience and the importance of experience. Maybe I haven't had the experience to know. But now we're going to have that shared experience. And we're going to build a stronger bond together as we learn this thing um, moving forward. So. Yeah, no, I don't know is absolutely, Brian, it's, it's just checking your ego to me. Oh, absolutely. Now, if somebody says, I don't know to me a lot, I'm going to start double double and triple guessing what it is that they do know. Uh, or if so, they say, uh-huh, uh-huh. That's what, that used to be mine as a kid, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, so let's. Uh, we're, I'm going to finish off this chapter real quick with the takeaway because I kind of like what it had to say. Sharing weakness, mistakes, and failures, your pratfalls, will help you to build trust, engage your team members, and foster a culture of innovation. But don't use it in a contrived or manipulative way. That's an inauthentic way of being authentic. Great leaders know how to drop the mask and just be the best version of their unique selves. They know what showing weakness actually is, the strongest sign of courage and confidence. All right, let's move on to chapter 10, Ed, and finish this out. Oh, chapter. So chapter 10, oddly, chapter 10 is actually a, a short chapter, and it's, it's going to be odd. But so chapter 10 is leadership is not a choice. And uh, before I get to the key idea, Brian, this, this, my friend, is our show. So key idea, leadership is influence. You influence with your words, but also your silence, your actions. And when you do nothing, you're either leading in a good direction or a bad direction. Uh Uh, And one of the very first things. So it says leadership with its endless definitions is most often boiled down to one word. What's that? What do you think that one word is, Brian? Oh, it started with an I, I bet. Influence? It is absolutely influence. So in his in the book, Kevin talks about this speaker, author and leadership expert, John Maxwell, who does some awesome work in uh, leadership type books, often says leadership is influence, nothing more, nothing less. In his book, Leadership for the 21st Century, Professor Joseph Rost 
reviews the changing definition of leadership over seven centuries. And he concludes that the, that, uh, the through line is leadership is an influence relationship. So leadership's not a choice. Leadership is influence. And all this really goes, a lot of this whole chapter centers around what's called social contagion. All right. Social contagion. And they did, um, there's a study of the popular mind first published in 1895. And in it, LeBon lays out the first detailed analysis of crowd psychology. We call it something else too. Uh, he is the first to formulate the theory of social contagion. He used the word contagion 30 times in 100 pages, describing how emotions, ideas, and behavior spread from person to person like a virus. The phenomenon of social contagion is why I say leadership is not a choice. Social contagion is nothing more than groupthink. We've talked about groupthink before on this show, Brian. Um, and, 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 you know, he's got... A whole lot of examples in here, but what are your thoughts on social contagion uh, as far as being groupthink? Well, I think because when you have that, you're you're all together, and you're 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 coming up with ideas, you're thinking, you're you're sharing information, and sometimes what happens is is you may not have the respect of someone within that group possibly, mm-hmm. and then you present something to the, the group and they're like, oh, I never thought, you know, Ed was that good of an individual or he was that thoughtful or, you know, that he actually knew what he was talking about. I, I completely agree yeah. with him. And you influence, you're, that's a small slither of influence. Actually, it's a large slither of influence. But yeah, I, I find, I think social contagion, uh, it it helps the, the, the group that's dealing with, with whatever they're dealing with kind of form together a little bit better, like putty or clay. Yeah. And so like he, like I said, he gives a bunch of examples. And one of them is a study that was conducted uh, in 2008. Nicholas Christakis of Harvard medical school and James Fowler at the university of California, San Diego analyzed three decades of health information from 12,000 individuals and their social networks. They discover that when one person quit smoking, their immediate friend and family members were 30%, 36% less likely to remain smokers. And even friends of friends were 20% less likely to smoke. The research summarized their findings. People appeared to act under collective pressure within niches in the network. So we're talking about leadership is influence. That first person that quit smoking, Right. They're having an influence. Therefore, they are showing leadership in those other uh, 36% that are less likely to remain as smokers. Yeah, okay, there's still, you know, uh, 64% that smoke, but 36% they were leading without meaning to. It's not a choice. They didn't say, I'm going to be the leader of this no smoking movement. No, they quit smoking probably for their own health or whatever their issues. Maybe they're having a child, whatever. And it had a direct influence. Um, so that's one of the studies that he he looks at. Uh, he also talks about uh, oh the dining one. This one was kind of interesting. So they did a study, and basically um, they had they had a group go into a restaurant, and they they had uh, two people right. So you and I, and they'll tell Brian, all right, you're going to eat this much, you're going to eat a normal amount or you're going to eat an excessive amount. And then they measured the impact on me 
or the other diners. And they had several people do it. Um, and basically what they found is participants ate about 10% less if their dining partner ate less. So basically if you and I go out to eat, Brian, without even thinking about it, I'm judging based off of how you're eating. Uh, also in the study, they found pace. So if you eat very rapidly, I will eat more rapidly. Now this does not work with my good friend, Tom Butler. Uh, I don't know if she listens, but <laughs> I had a, no, I had a soldier. Her name was, no, that dude eats like a machine. I had a friend and her name was Diane Richardson. And that's the slowest eater in the history of man. And I could not eat that slow. She couldn't have influenced me to eat that slow, slowly. But so it's just interesting that, and you know, you go out to eat and you can really see it. Um, I went out to eat with my coworkers. A bunch of us went out to eat and you could really kind of see that everybody at one table kind of finished around the same time. And then another table, maybe they finished faster and it's odd, like, you know, you have four people at a table and and three of the four finish really quickly. And it's like, huh, I wonder if that's the real pace. And it's because I read this this book that made me think like that. It's just human nature with some people. Yeah, it is. You just adjust. You, you're not adjusting to, to Butler, though. No, no, no. You're not. That guy just. Yeah. yeah or his a quantity or his uh, rate of eating. Yeah, he's a, <laughs> he is a machine when he eats. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't. Uh, so, so the way that you, if you read through this chapter, like I said, there's other studies, uh, involving eating and drinking patterns. It talks about, uh, children, our influence over our children by our actions, talks about the importance of eating at the table, which is a, I'm pretty sure that, uh, if they conducted a survey, that doesn't happen a lot in this TV age. Uh, people like to eat at the tele- at, in front of TV, not so much at the table. Not at my house. But so we did, I want to say at one point we tried, um, and I'm I'm actually the culprit that ruined it, to say, oh, we'll at least eat at the table on Sunday dinner. You know what I mean? But then I kind of ruined it. And to be honest with you, we have a dining room table that my wife started putting together about two months ago, and I never, I was supposed to finish, and it's still not together. So <laughs> I should tell you. But it's just two of us. Anyway, and, and it's, so that's her, she can't hear me now. That's her influence on me, though, because... If I see her go to the living room with her plate, then I got to go with my plate to watch television. Anyway, <laughs> I didn't mean that. I see what you did. But that's what this, but the chapter is really, it's uh, about a lot of that type of stuff, Brian. And again, we've talked about this several times. So which people at work had the most positive impact when they join a meeting or enter a room? So we've talked about that soldier that has that sphere of influence. And remember I told you I had the young soldier that, Whatever her mood was dictated the whole platoon's mood. Right. And I told her, you're, you could be a great leader. But she didn't see it. But that was the influence side. So influence is leader. Leadership is influence. You know what I mean? Like, you've seen it, I'm sure, throughout your career where somebody has that kind of an impact, you know? Oh, absolutely. It's funny that you, you we talk about that, though, because I, I find myself, if I'm eating with somebody and they're eating slowly, I eat when they eat. I talk or listen, sit there and listen when they're talking or, or vice versa. But it's, it's really weird how, you know, that's, that's something we do. Or think about this. What if other people's food comes out and one person's doesn't? You know, you kind of notice the influence of the situation, maybe not so much the person, but the situation where no one else is eating until that other person's food's there. And they may say, oh, go ahead and eat. I can, I can. 
but sometimes they'll still just wait. So it's kind of weird how that all works. It's like, it's really just like human, you know, uh, interactions and whatnot behavior. I just, I, so I thought this chapter, I was surprised by the length of this chapter. And he really, he sums the whole thing up uh, in the last paragraph. You are a role model, whether you want to be or not. Your emotions and actions cross over to those around you. Want your teenagers to be safe drivers? Then you should never let them see you text and drive. Want them to maintain a healthy weight? Keep your own BMI in check. (laughs) Wish your spouse was more grateful for all that you do? Make sure you are expressing gratitude freely, too. Uh, Frustrated that your employees at work show up late to meetings? Make sure you are always on time. And close the door and start the presentation the very second the meeting is supposed to begin. Want people to care about the company? Ask about their kids and how they spent their weekend so they know that you care about them. Want your players to show respect to the referees? Don't yell at curse to the referees with every bad call. And when you're feeling bored, a little down, unmotivated, or even sad, that's the exact time you should look around at others and lead. Mm. So he really sums it up. And a lot of those are examples that he does give, um, you know, throughout the book. But we've talked about before. I can't tell my soldier don't drink and drive and then go out to eat with them and get in the car after I've had a couple of vodkas and cranberry. It just doesn't work that way. Um, But what I can do is have, you know, I can have a few vodka and cranberry with my dinner and then call an Uber. That's leading. That's being an influence to that soldier because they're like, wow. Did he just call Uber? Yes, I did, because that's the right thing, and that's what I want you to do. So what are your thoughts, Brian? I would definitely say that I have to agree with that entirely. Uh, it's funny that what you read at the end. It reads exactly something in the very front that it kind of it sticks with me all the time now because I think about like when I'm doing so. If I'm walking by a piece of trash and there's somebody around that I don't even know them and I pick up that trash – they're going to think, oh, wow, the first one picking up trash. Maybe I should, you know, or yep. maybe they just don't. But Absolutely. it says, even if you don't want to, you even influence strangers. You influence others when you act and when you stand by. You influence others when you speak up and when you remain silent. And because influence equals leadership, this means leadership is not a choice. You're leading whether you want to or not. It falls in that whole category. We've talked about it before is the informal leader. The informal leader is going to be doing that. Now, we have a choice to actually do something or not. Either way, we're going to be leading people down a certain pathway. And whether it be the right thing, the wrong thing, whatever, we need to make sure that we're on the right track to make the organization better to make our families better, to become closer with our friends and families, to do all the the positive things. You know, negativity breeds more negativity. Good breeds good. And and that's the way I see it. Uh, And I I definitely uh, have seen it happen. So I definitely think the that whole you don't have a you don't have a you don't have a choice in leadership. I totally believe that people are going to follow what you do. If, if first sergeant's out doing things he shouldn't be doing and soldiers are seeing it, what's the very first thing they're going to talk about when they see their buddies? Well, how they saw the first sergeant doing blah, blah, blah. Exactly, right? Or if captain such and such or major such and such is doing something and some people see it, they're going to talk about it. It's automatically going to happen. So now it's like, well, we have to eliminate those bad things 
and do the right thing so other people are influenced by doing the right thing. Oh, I had a first sergeant who told me, you know, when you don't think the soldiers are looking, that's when they're looking. And uh, if you're not doing the right thing, that's when they're going to see it. And they're going to let everybody know it. Like, now I didn't agree with everything that first sergeant always told me, but that was one of the things that's always uh, stuck with me. When you don't think they're looking, that's when they're looking. All right, Ed. So to finalize this whole book and over the past two episodes, which with a total of almost four hours, this is probably the longest <laughs> like running subject we've done yet, buddy. Uh, I want to read this very last part of the conclusion. Oh, yeah. It, it really speaks, and I think what we get from it uh, can either mean a lot or nothing at all. So here we go. Finally, great leaders care. You care. Otherwise, you wouldn't be reading this book. And when you put this book down, you do have a choice to make. You will live your life on autopilot or will you lead with intent? Remember, leadership equals influence. You are influencing, leading those around you, whether you want to or not. The question is, are you leading in a positive direction or are you leading in a negative direction? The choice is yours. How will you lead today? That's amazing right there. Yeah. All right, Red, what do you got for the listeners before we exit this episode today? So I would definitely tell the listeners, hey, check out the book. But not only the book, I would also recommend the LeadX podcast. They're they're short, quick hit episodes um, that he does. And he has a wide variety of guests. uh, And uh, I I think you should check those out, too. They're pretty good. I enjoy them. All right, Ed, so now we're closing it out, man. We got a few things we usually always tell all the listeners, but the first thing we're going to hit upon is that task. This is this episode 38. We're going to hit upon the task for episode 38. Really? It just comes down to one thing. Get the book. Get the book. Go out, get the book, buy it on Amazon. <laughs> get it whatever word or format you want, whether it be audiobook, whether it be on Kindle, whether it be the hardback or the paperback. Get it. And then take a picture with it or something and then add it to the task just below the task. Add it as one of the comments. With that, we also have, if you remember correctly, 101 Influence is how you can connect with the Instinctive Influencers podcast via Facebook. Also, 101 Influence works for Twitter and Instagram. So you can check all those out. Please go to our website and let us know what you think. Uh, of the show and and what Ed and I have been putting together. Uh, you can also leave comments also on the Facebook pages. Uh, w- just kind of let us know what you think. But really, it's, hey, we're, we've got a lot of ideas coming out and a lot of things going on. The website again, though, was www.instinctiveinfluencers.com. Uh, and just, you know, keep checking it out. We've got uh, we've got some really good topics that are about to come up, and Ed and I have been discussing things, and it looks like we're going to relaunch some stuff possibly, and and just we're gonna. I mean, there's there's a lot of work ahead of us, but we're kind of excited to get it done. Anything from you, Ed? No, uh, just uh, like Brian said, man, check us out on all all these platforms of social media, and let us know what you think. Check out the LinkedIn, and uh, tune in next week. Next week, yeah, that's absolutely correct. All right, with that, I am Brian. And I am Ed. And this has been the Instinctive Influencers Podcast. We thank you for listening. Have a great day.